Hi, everyone. Welcome to this uh, ACFM microdose, which will probably be more than a microdose, in which I, Jeremy Gilbert, and uh, my uh, friend and comrade, Kim Milburn, Hello. We'll be interviewing uh, our friend, Rodrigo Nunes. Hello. And we're doing this uh, as a microdose, a supplemental um, episode of ACFM, supplementing our big episode, episodes really already on the topic of revolution. And so we're interviewing Rodrigo because he published this year uh, a book called Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal, A Theory of Political Organization, uh, published by Verso, which touches on a, a huge number of issues which are really central to our themes and concerns and has a whole chapter on the indeed on the question of revolution. So we're going to chat about a number of the themes uh, and issues raised in the book. And first off, we were going to talk about this core concept of revolution, this question of what it means to think about radical politics in an era when, as we said in the main episode, we appear to require nothing short of revolutionary transformation. And yet the political conditions for revolution just don't seem to obtain in almost any country in the world. And so, Rodrigo, maybe you could uh, talk to us a bit about, A, why did you write, why is there a whole chapter of the book called Revolution in Crisis? And, and what is your ultimate feeling, your conclusion about the concept of revolution and revolutionary transformation? There were two major reasons. Well, both of them were uh, connected to the, the broader project of the book, which was... Um, to function as uh, an intervention in debates in which I felt that that a certain uh, um, theoretical clarity or consistency was lacking in a very specific way. Like people, and that's probably, that's certainly partially to do with uh, what I call the crisis of the idea of revolution um, in the book. We've been lacking a general theory of what we're doing for a long time, we as in uh, the left. And as a consequence, we sort of pick and mix uh, stuff from different tra traditions and different contexts, and we apply those things in in a way that's not very uh, consistent. And one of the things that I wanted to do with this chapter was to point out the ways in which the understanding of revolution seemed to have changed, not only because of uh, the failed revolutionary experiences of the 20th century, but also as a consequence of much broader uh, transformations and, you know, this stuff that I've bring into the discussion that's like the appearance of statistical mechanics and thermodynamics as having a bearing on these debates. And so the, the three main transformations that I was uh, charting was speaking in very broad, diffuse terms, what seems to be uh, plausible for us in the idea or seems to have become implausible for us in the idea of revolution nowadays. The three transformations that I was trying to chart were 
the passage from uh, historical determinism to a much more open-ended, contingent idea of history. So we, we can't try as we might. It's very hard for us to believe in historical determinism nowadays for a number of reasons. Connected to that, this is actually a term that I take from Badiou, the passage from what I call uh, following a transitive understanding of the revolutionary subject, by which I mean the idea that there's a, a transitive relation between uh, social structure and the agent of transformation of that social structure namely that there is a privileged structural position that's privileged both in the sense that it necessarily develops a revolutionary consciousness, but also that it occupies the one position in the social structure that is capable of producing a revolutionary transformation, both of which were ideas that were um, part of the understanding of the proletariat in the, the Marxist tradition and how we abandoned that transitive understanding of the revolutionary subject in favor of a compositional understanding of the revolutionary subject, that the idea that any revolutionary subject that we might have will actually have to be composed out of different elements, uh, different interests, different class positions or different class fractions, that they will have different motives, different reasons to act, etc. And so the challenge is to construct those connections and create that uh, composition that any revolutionary subject will always be uh, a, a Frankenstein mon monster in the sense that it will be made of parts of different things rather than emerging naturally and spontaneously from uh, a predetermined position in a given structure. And then the, the third transformation that I try to chart is the transformation from what I call and here I'm following uh, Simon Don, a hylomorphic understanding of um, revolution. Basically, an understanding of the role of the revolutionary subject as being that of giving a form to a matter of the world that doesn't have its own uh, inner tendencies that could be shaped in any form by the revolutionary subject. And instead of that, we seem to have moved to an understanding of uh, political action and consequently revolutionary action as well as always acting on, um, on a complex world. So we replace this uh, hylomorphism, this idea of a sovereign agent that can just uh, freely give form to matter, we move to the idea of one agent acting among many other agents, uh, all of which have their own inner tendencies, uh, their own limits. And political action is a matter of 
being one agent among others that's acting within that complex world. So that was one of the things that I was doing. The other thing was pointing out the way in which from the moment the the very idea of a revolution goes into crisis, as I suggest in the chapter prior to this chapter on revolution, this crisis actually happens twice. Um, It's a, a crisis in relation to the 1917 model of uh, revolution and a crisis in relation to what we could describe as the 1968 model of uh, revolution. Both of those fail in their own terms and in their own way and uh, the crisis of the idea idea of revolution is the crisis of, you know, what do, do we do now that the two models that we thought we had have um, failed? And one of the things that happens in the period when this crisis becomes definitive, say from the late 70s, early 80s until now, is that you sort of have a, let's say, the um, extensive idea of revolution is replaced by an intensive idea of revolution. So you can't, basically you can't, you can't think at the same time, a revolution that would go, that would be truly transformative and would happen at the appropriate scale. And then the tendency is to choose, well, let's have the most radical transformation that we can have in whatever space in which we can have that transformation. I think the clearest example of that would be the idea of the um, temporary autonomous zone. It's like, let's live this revolutionary situation that's only going to last for a little bit and we'll we'll have the intensive experience of the revolution but we won't have the revolution in the sense that the word was uh, actually meant which is a permanent transformation of a system which ultimately is a world system so you abandon the the hope even though it's not everyone who makes it clear that this is what they're doing. Many people, um, many, many thinkers and, and um, movements tend to be, uh, be more uh, equivocal in relation to what they're doing. But it, ultimately what you're doing is you're abandoning the hope for a system level transformation in exchange for, well, what is the most radical thing that we can experience within whatever confines. And eventually this intensive idea of, um, of revolution comes to be understood as being more radical than the system-wide transformation, because obviously the idea of system-wide transformation always comes with, you know, anything at that scale is always going to come with lots of, um, uh, compromises of all all kinds and um, 
you're going to have to build institutions of some kind. You're going to have to build structures of some kind. You're going to, you're going to be threatened by the danger of the concentration of power, uh, etc., in a way that you wouldn't be if you were working at a much smaller scale, both in spatial and temporal terms. So the fact that you can avoid all those risks and all those problems in the intensive experience of revolution makes it so that the intensive idea of revolution comes to be seen as being more radical. So having a very compressed, uh, exp- having, let's say, having a, a, an, ex- an experience that's revolutionary in a deep sense but doesn't but doesn't go wide is preferable to having a system-wide transformation that um, that would no doubt come with all sorts of different problems. And I and what I'm trying to do, the other thing that I'm trying to do in this chapter is to to point out, and this is what connects it to climate change, you know. In the face of climate change, you don't have the option to choose the intensive over the extensive anymore because you could have a million intensive experiences that if they failed at the system-wide level of um, you know, dismantling the, the fossil fuel industry, shortening the, the long logistical chains that connect different parts of the world today, et cetera, et cetera, you would still not be addressing the problem. So climate change actually gives us the opportunity to go back to the original idea of uh, revolution as a system-wide transformation of a system that ultimately coincides with the earth, you know, the system that is a world system. So yeah. I guess those are the two things that I was trying to do there. And I'm glad I managed to remember that those were the <laughs> Well, it's almost like there's a conjunctural argument of the book which says the conjuncture has come along and given us a chance to get rid of all of these melancholic attachments that we that the left has built up. Um, so it's almost as though, you know, revolution was unthinkable and, and then and, and then the problem of transition, how to transition out of this society, at least this, this society on this, based on this energy base is the problem, uh, is the problem of, of everybody. It's the problem of our time, basically. And so in the book, you, you sort of reverse the, the poll and say, well, uh, you know, we used to think of revolution and uh, uh, as this big process in which the revolutionary transition was what was one bit of it. And that, you know, there's all, there's a big theory on revolutionary transition. And now the, the, the problem is transition Will we have um, something that looks like an, an, an insurrectionary revolution? Well, maybe, but that would just be one part of it. It's within it's within that that part. So there's like a conjunctural. The conjunctures come along to save us, sort of argument in there. Um, but like, uh, if we want to position your, because I think it'd be good to go back, like talk a little bit about how we all know each other, and then position this book amongst uh, uh, other historical doublings so i think in the book i think there's a doubling of there's a crisis of the 1970s and in particular crisis of 
of the sorts of thoughts that people were, or the theories and attempts to address the problem of revolution post-1968. There's a whole set of theories, and those are really important resources that you go to. Rodrigo, just they're, they're pretty good, important resources for me and Jeremy as well. Let's not hide this thing. But then there's also the crisis of the of the mid to uh, mid 2010s. So there's a crisis of the 2010s. So you wrote this book, or one of the one of the prompts for for you writing this book was the failure of the 2011 wave. But then it, it, it's doubling in Brazil in the 2013 protest wave. Yeah, and it's it's a little bit like you know we we want to get rid of these two left melancholies, the left melancholy from 1978 and the left melancholy from 1968. But in fact, we're mainly going to 1968, uh, the the post 1968 sort of theoretical wave, in order to address the t- the 2010s theoretical wave. I mean, in your defence, you're probably you're, when you go back to the 1970s, you're trying to go back and let's and say let's put the Lenin back into the 1970s, basically, <laughs> uh, to some degree. So you know, you want to go to to Foucault and Deleuze and Guattari when they're at their pr- most Leninist. I'm sure they wouldn't like that like it put that way but yeah it is their them at their most leninist point because it's a the it's the problem of like the failure of 1968 as a revolutionary project that people are trying to address and then that gets you know in fact in 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 the book you sort of say you know that the problem with that is there was this huge theoretical wave really rich thinking but by the time you get to the 1980s there's no agent to do that thinking anymore there's no collective agent left and it's only after sort of perhaps post 2008 but certainly post the 2010s that, that that the problem comes back and can be addressed again minus perhaps the over the overdetermination by neoliberalism yeah i mean the 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 one decade that's missing from that summary is the 90s and i think is if this book connects to uh, a nair of the times or to uh, a zeitgeist of sorts, which is something I can see, I think I can see, for example, in Paolo Gibaldo's new book that you, uh, I know you're discussing with him next, you, Kia, are discussing with him next week, is the fact that we're leaving the 90s behind at last. So this return... I think this return to the 70s that you just described involves precisely abandoning a certain way in which those books and those thinkers were read in the 90s that was precisely in a context when revolution had become uh, unthinkable uh, and had clearly become not just unthinkable, but uh, undesirable. No one really wanted it anymore because everyone thought, well, that's just going to end up in the gulag. That's what always happens. And so there is, it, there are a number of things in those books and in those thinkers that got pushed aside, uh, ignored, or, you know, downplayed in favor of other aspects. And one of those things is precisely the fact I, I used to, in the process of writing the book, I never, I still don't, don't know how to give a, an elevator pitch for the book. I still haven't developed a proper one. 
But I used to come up with these epithets that promised all these different things that the book was going to do. And one of the one of those was this book will give post-structuralism the theory of organization that it lacked. And actually, I think there is the beginning of a theory of organization in the late 60s and the early 70s in the work of people like, I would say, Guattari more than uh, Deleuze, if anything, against the usual narrative that pits Deleuze as the, the proper philosopher who was led astray by the activist Guattari. I think in this point, the problem was that the proper philosopher led the, the activist astray. But I think you find elements of that in Foucault as well. And, and then those things get read later on in, well, obviously they go through that, as you said, they go through that experience of disillusionment of, you know, the, the movement that they counted on, uh, disappearing the, the long winter, as Qatari puts it. Exactly. Uh, and then you have, you know, the, one of the best documents of that is the, the last thing that Foucault writes about Iran after he gets uh, lambasted for his initial enthusiasm for the um, Iranian revolution, where he does, um, he's citing Horkheimer in that passage, but he does directly put the question, you know, maybe we should be asking ourselves as uh, Horkheimer has, if the revolution is so desirable, after all, and he he writes this defense of the idea of the revolt over the idea of revolution, which we could understand as a defense of intensive the intensive idea of revolution over the extensive idea of revolution. So that transformation is happening in that turn from the seventies to the eighties, and then all of that gets read in a distorted way. I think we could say under neoliberal hegemony in the 90s. And this is, this is something that I know you two have been discussing a lot as well. One of the things that we're seeing is the end of the long 90s at last, also in the way that, you know, the theory that is dear to us was um, distorted by the 90s. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a very good point. I mean, I want to just clarify this for listeners who aren't going to be as familiar with some of these details as, as we are, that we're all roughly the same age and we were like graduate students in the 90s, the early 2000s. And, you know, we all had the experience of reading and being heavily influenced by a group of thinkers and philosophers who were at the peak of their activity in the really in the early half, the first half of the 70s. And they were very much associated with the, the wave of radical movements uh, for which 68 is sometimes a sort of metonym. But they were being read in the universities, in the English-speaking world in particular, to some extent in France as well, it has to be said. They were being read under these conditions whereby really, you know, under the conditions of the 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 great defeat of Soviet communism, the kind of the turn against the whole idea of revolution. And really, 
I mean, my argument is that to a large extent, they were being read by liberals and they were being read as they were being read as anti-Marxist by liberals who wanted a kind of sexy anti-Marxism that they could deploy in, which was always a misreading. I mean, it's just a basic rule of thumb. If people, you know, French, French political culture is just significantly to the left of, of Anglophone political culture. And, you know, if you don't understand, if you try to translate the terms of debate within French political culture or Italian political culture into English, into terms that map it onto English speaking political culture, you pretty much invariably misunderstand like how left wing people think of themselves as being. So like when Foucault is polemicizing against the communist party in France, he's doing so from a perspective, which I would say is clearly that of a, some sort of a libertarian socialism, but then it's very easy for just liberal centrist sort of anti-socialists in the English-speaking world to sort of pick up Foucault and say, oh, look, is here are some tools we can use to critique all forms of Marxism and socialism. And there were really, I mean, there were really egregious examples of this in the 90s, particularly around the reading of Deleuze. I mean, Deleuze got read, Deleuze and Guattari got read in Britain as sort of philosophers of right-wing libertarianism. Okay. So yeah, so it's so for, for all of us, one of the things that's going on is this sort of recovery of these thinkers. I mean, I think this is significant because, like the younger generation, like the I mean, the our sort of millennial comrades didn't go through this experience, and for the most part, their experience has been like recovering Marxism and just sort of seeing that post-structuralist moment of the seventies and eighties as a thing they're reacting against. Basically, people have gone back to Marx and Gramsci. And, and largely just sort of reject, you know, most of this, most of this sort of theory, which they now associate completely understandably with a sort of liberal backlash. In terms of an elevator pitch, you know, shall I attempt an elevator pitch Please. for the for listeners? Let me, let me can, write it down. You can correct. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the book starts, you know, it starts, it comes out of the experience of radical politics in the 90s and the first decade or so of the 21st century, wherein various groups and organisations were trying to were trying to agitate for forms of politics which neither took the form of kind of very conventional, like historically conventional communism, or just kind of you know post-war social democracy or neoliberalism with some amelioration that was offered by the third way from things like the Rhodes protest in Britain to the anti-globalization movement through to the experiences of uh, 2011 and Occupy, etc. There's a series of political experiments which are trying to, in which people are trying to find radically democratic ways of organizing and they're trying to contest neoliberal hegemony in ways which aren't sort of conditioned by that history, by they're not, you know, follow, they're not just following the dogmatic pattern of, the, say, the Trotskyist movement. And yet, time and again, they come up against a set of limitations. And the most obvious of those limitations is that within those circles and those movements, partly under the influence of very, some very crude forms of anarchism, partly under the influence of very crude readings of some of the philosophy we've been talking about, partly just under the influence of an unproblematized libertarian individualism. There's just a very strong resistance to pretty much to any notion of strategy and any notion of substantial organisation. I mean, I can remember, I mean, this would have been when around the time we would have first met each other, Rodrigo, in the early, really in the early 2000s. Like we were moving in circles 
around things like the social forum movement in Britain and the, the anti-globalization movement, where there were large numbers of people who literally, they would literally say, if you said, look, I think a movement needs a political strategy, they would say, well, you're a Stalinist. You know, you're a, you know, there is just, there is no, the very concept of strategy is in some sense like a, oppressive and offensive you know that you can't you can't have a strategy without somebody telling someone else what to do and somebody telling else what to do someone else what to do is the the ethical crime par excellence which can never be you know countenanced and this was extremely frustrating and it was extremely frustrating for those of us who kind of always thought where you ought to read Marx and Gramsci and Lenin and you ought to read Deleuze and Guattari and you ought to figure out how these things all work together and you ought to both take seriously the libertarian critiques of the you know democratic centralist vanguardist tradition and also but also not abandon you couldn't just abandon any notion of strategy because I mean, really, the, I mean, the argument I was making sort of 12 years ago, and I think it, it does sort of recur in the book, in this book in a really sort of perfected form, I think, is well, one of the places you got to quite quickly, and it's always a danger for those kind of arguments, is a point where there were just no criteria according to which political success or failure could ever be established. So, you know, lots of people, I mean, lots of people we all work with politically just got themselves into a place where you could never say, look, we tried something and it failed. Like you somehow, you always had to claim that the action had been a success. Like, you know, you'd done some shitty bit of street theatre, you know, that had just alienated the local community, but it had made you and your mates feel good for a couple of hours and you still had to say it was brilliant. And frankly, that's still going on with XR. Extinction Rebellion are still doing that now. They're still completely refusing to impose any kind of criteria on their activities, which might acknowledge the fact that, you know, their second big action, for example, completely failed to deliver any of the stuff it had promised it was going to do and what that might mean. So in the process of, and in the process of addressing that set of questions and that set of issues, the book goes through it establishes first it establishes the importance just of the very idea of organization and the fact that uh, that if analyzed or thought about and an appropriate level of abstraction any thinking about organization has to start from the premise that look everything is organized just experience as such is organized otherwise it's just chaotic it's just you're, you're just in a seamless flow of information you're just you might just be living in the Tao, but you're not you know you're not actually doing anything or thinking about anything without some form of organization. And so from that, from that, and that all really all claims about, you know, different forms of organization to, to some extent or about the value or, or um, of, or the value or, um, or weakness of certain forms of organization uh, are to some extent are being made you know, are, are really sort of claims about, this is one of the things I take from the book, are really sort of claims about questions of scale and they're, qu they're claims about questions of scope and they're questions about the appropriateness of certain functions being carried out by certain bodies. Often rather than really being sort of disagreements about, you know, whether certain things, tasks have to be carried out or not for political success to be achieved. And so, I mean, in terms of the, the historical narrative as well, the bit I've sort of missed out was that really, I mean, the other thing the book I think is responding to really importantly is, it seems to me, is that the end is the fact that after the kind of obvious failure of this wave of kind of libertarian, non-strategic, you know, politics in the, from the second half of the 90s, really through to about the 20, early 2010s, 
then uh, uh, indeed amongst especially that sort of millennial cohort and some kind of uh, you know theorists like people like Zizek there's a sort of counter reaction which is just ends up with a sort of polemical embrace of of Leninism and the idea of communism and people saying oh, we need to get back to this kind of classical idea of revolution which is again clearly has no sort of purchase so it seems to me that a lot of the work of the book is to really demonstrate very persuasively that indeed, as I just said, many disagreements about forms of organisation, which end up polemically taking the form of people saying, for example, you know, all organisation must pass through the party form, or the party form is always oppressive, or all, all organisations should be done by networks, or no networks are bad, they're just a capitalist form whatsoever. None of it is really disagreements about the kind of things that, that a movement or organisation, a collective body of people need to get done if they're going to have some kind of political success. It, and it's often just a very confused set of debates about the question of, of what scale tasks should be carried out or what temporality various tasks should be carried out. And so one of the most powerful arguments in the book, I think, it seems to me, is that if you're going to approach the question of organisation, you have to ask yourself, okay, what are the things that have to be done for a political project to be successful? Like, What are the various things that have to be done? Resources have to be marshaled. Decisions have to be made about how resources are marshaled. People who don't already agree with the project have to be persuaded to agree with the project up to a certain point. And that one of the most useful ways to get through the, sort of em- the impasses between a lot of these different... Um, debates over question of organization is to sort of is firstly to abstract them and this is why abstraction is is often useful as a conceptual move is to say look let's abs- let's think about the functions that have to be carried out in certain in, for in order for any sort of political project to be successful and let's abstract those our understanding of those functions from our kind of attachment or to or revulsion from any particular institutional or organizational forms and let's then think about what would it mean to have a, a conception of political organization which accepts that those functions have to be carried out but is always agnostic and open-minded about who might carry them out where when and by what means and, and the logical consequence of that is to have what the book posits as an ecological model of organisation, according to which you recognise that well, any movement or organisation or set of organisations that is going to is going to have any kind of political success, you know, indeed has to involve a set of different particular political tasks being carried out. But it's going to vary from one context to another, whether they're all being carried out by a mass party organisation like Gramsci envisaged, or whether they're carried out by a party and a bunch of NGOs and a bunch of community groups, or whether they're carried out by just a bunch of people on Facebook or whatever. And that really, to some extent, the ultimate, the sort of plea of the book is for people to be sort of both rigorous yet open-minded in approaching the question of political organisation by focusing at the appropriate level of abstraction on the question of what are the tasks that have to be carried out in particular contexts and accepting that the answer to that that question might be relatively uniform, but the question of who, where and when they should be carried out is going to vary from context to context. Thanks, Jim. Can I just point out that only works as an elevator pitch if you're in that tower in Dubai and you come to the top floor. <laughs> well, yeah, fine. Yeah, that's my. You're that's holding the other people hostage in the elevator, <laughs> when you? 
That was less than 10 minutes for a very complex book. Thank you. So, it was a very good summary. It's not an elevator yeah. pitch. <laughs> well, I mean, it was a context and then an elevator. I mean, the, the, the mere, ele- okay, the elevator pitch would just be political organisation requires certain tasks to be carried out. Who carries them out? Where, the, where and when they are carried out doesn't, is going to vary from context to context. And it's people's confusion over the, over the, the question of, of whether certain tasks have to be carried out or whether the, the political issue is who has to carry them out or whether, or whether they have to be carried out at all, which often leads to political impasses. Excellent. <laughs> let, me, let me write that down. <laughs> if that's a reasonable summary... I mean, I think it is really important. It's important to sort of talk this through because I, I think we should talk about what this means, what the implications of this are for some concrete situations. So, well, the obvious thing for us to talk about is the UK situation. And obviously I would just, I mean, I would say this, but I mean, to me, the book just gives a very clear sort of theoretical framework within which to justify you know what i think is just is the correct attitude that people should have towards you know issues like uh, like, i'm I'm hoping this is how everyone who buys the book (laughs) will feel so buy this book and feel like this yes (laughs) i think because i mean almost anyone listening to this will probably have heard me say in some context already and i'm writing a thing for the momentum sort of email newsletter this week saying it again and that is that look a great deal of strategic confusion amongst people on the corbynite and post-corbynite left over the past few years has derived from people's confusion about the appropriate attitude to have to an institution like the labor party and I, i would say it's basically comes from people wanting the Labour Party to be either the thing they love or the thing they hate. You know, either the thing which is the, which they are identified with and are attached to and are going to support um, as such on its own terms and are going to enthusiastically be members of or a thing that they basically are opposed to, they want to formulate some kind of left opposition to, that they want to, you know, see as... Yeah, the problem, and that neither of the, these things are really appropriate because what we should see the Labour Party is is a set of you know often quite contradictory institutions, which form part of a much wider ecology of the left and indeed the Liberal Centre, and which you know you just have to adopt a much more complex, nuanced, and instrumental attitude to if you're going to negotiate sort of centrally. Some, I mean, that would be, that's one example of how I think this is obviously relevant. But I think rather than me kind of banging on this, you know, that line, which, you know, for ages now, and I, th- and I think I think we should sort of come back in more detail to the question of the sort of post-Corbynite left, because Keir's obviously, you know, got really important things to say about that as well. And we all have. But maybe you should talk in a bit more detail for the listeners about well, what the sort of the specific political contexts and debates that, that this was emerging from i guess especially the sort of its the relationship of the book to that sort of um 2011 moment so what was going on i mean what in more detail like what was going on like in 2011 for example that the book is trying to sort of respond to well the way i always tell the story is i i wanted to write this book to free people to make their own mistakes rather than making other people's mistakes without realizing that that's what they were doing. 
because one of the things that was, I think we all had, all of us who went through the experience of the, the anti-globalization movement and even like in, in, in the case of you two, even earlier stuff like the, the anti-road movement, the most remarkable thing about 2011 perhaps was the fact that I, I had, okay, I have this anecdote of, I was living in Port Alegre uh, at the time. I had just come back from, from doing my PhD in the UK. And you could already sense that something was coming in, in Brazil, that something like the 2013 protests were coming because one of, one of the interesting signs in Port Alegre at the time was the critical mass had become a big thing, which was very ironic because it wasn't a, a big thing anywhere else in the world at that point. And also it hadn't been a big thing in, in Brazil or in, in Port Alegre back but just when. Just ex explain what it, it was, was for people who won't know. Right, yeah. So critical mass was a kind of uh, action that emerged in the 90s, I think, in San Francisco, uh, which was basically, I mean, this would be a, a function as uh, an example of what I was calling the intensive idea of revolution. It, it was, the idea was that it was a kind of um, reclaim the city action where people would just, a mass of people would go around the city on bikes together and they were together for security reasons because you know that numbers protected them from the traffic but there were there was also like this symbolic dimension of we are taking the city we are reclaiming the city from the cars and so this was happening in in Porto Alegre in 2011 2012 and at the time, I was involved in I was involved in community organizing with uh, communities that were being affected by the works that had been planned for the uh, the World Cup, which was going to happen in 2014. So people who were being uh, who were under threat of being uh, expelled from their homes, etc. And there was this new energy coming from you know, this critical mass people who were getting bigger and bigger every week. So we tried to draw them in and we had this, these incredible, and all the people who were involved in this, uh, or most of the people who were involved in this community organizing project were people who had been active in the anti-globalization movement and the, the World Social Forum and we had this incredibly frustrating experience talking to the critical mass people who were all like 10 years younger than us because we were trying to draw them in and they would be like, well, you have to understand that uh, we, we are a horizontal leaderless movement, blah, blah. And it was incredibly frustrating because we were like, well, first, A, you don't have to talk to us like we're old people who don't understand uh, your young politics. This was our politics 10 years ago. Also, this was our politics 10 years ago. Um, 
And one of the reasons why this is not up politics anymore is precisely because of this kind of thing. Like they, it's just, however much we tried with the people we talked to, we were like, okay, but can you call a meeting and we'll take it from there with whoever comes to the meeting, we'll talk to them. But like people felt that because it was supposed to be a horizontal uh, leaderless movement, that form of politics was incompatible with them individually taking the initiative of proposing to the group that they were organizing with, uh, you know, there are these people who would like to talk to us and get us involved in this other thing that's, go that's going on in the city and that's going to be huge in, in a few years' time because of the, because of the World Cup. And that allowed me to see, like, all the things that we were talking about in relation to uh, the politics, let's say the spontaneous politics of everyone who came of age in the 90s and the early 2000s and how much, how much of uh, liberalism and anti-communism or, like, a huge, you know, I'm sure part of the, the problem there was that they were very suspicious of us because we were doing community organizing. And surely if you're doing community organizing, then you must belong to a political party and we don't want anything to do with political parties, etc. So my main motivation back in 2011 was A, to like, I realized, okay, there was a collective learning that um, my generation has gone through that hasn't been communicated at all, among other things, because we didn't create the media that could pass that on to a new generation of activists. And it was only in places like Spain where there was really a transfer of knowledge from one generation, from the generation of the turn of the century to like the generation that became active in 2011. And at the same time, the other thing that was really interesting about 2011 was precisely the fact of the fact that people very quickly ran against the limits of that experience. And like, I, you know, we couldn't prevent them from making the same mistakes but maybe they learned from those mistakes much more quickly. No thanks to us. Yeah, so as I say in, in the book, maybe we should see 2011 as the 1989 of 1968, in the same way that 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, was the moment where, okay, the fantasy of a socialist revolution in the old mold has become completely unthinkable now you can't really go back to it or you can only go back to it as some kind of quasi pathological attachment uh at this point in the same way that what i was describing as the spontaneous politics that came with uh 2011 and prior to that with the anti-globalization movement and that many people would trace back to 1968, even though that's sort of also a retrospective 
construction, 1968, is from the 80s onwards made to mean that, whereas it was, like if you look at it from the organizational point of view, it was a lot more complex and not as clear-cut as a, a horizontalist movement. As I say in, in the book, I felt like people are ready for this conversation now. And the way to do it is to try and start from scratch. Let's, let's start by defining the terms we're dealing with. Let's start by defining what organization is, what leadership is, what spontaneity is. Let's try and redefine all the terms in, in the debate so that we can so that we can have this, this discussion for realsies this time and not in a way where people are just trying to score points for their particular political beliefs, but they are actually trying to solve practical problems. Just to, just to as a, as a, I don't know if it's a provocation or not, actually. But anyway, it, instead of it being 68, 2011, instead of 2011 being, being the 89 of 68, perhaps the 2011 was the 89 of 99, i.e. the Seattle anti-globalization sort of upsurge. And like the difference between, if, if, so, if 2011 was an attempt at a repetition of 1999, um, it went much, much bigger, basically. You know, it, so 2011 was the the 1989 of 68 or 99, whatever you want to put it. it. It was that because that idea of politics was tried out on a really massive scale, on a scale which has never been tried out before. That form of politics, and it and it basically reached its own limits really, really quickly. And then there was a crisis period, and and people regrouped and went on to some to something else. And it's interesting. Uh, it, it's interesting in relation to what. Um, Jeremy was saying earlier about, um, you know, there being no criteria, there, there not even being any criteria by which you could measure uh, failure or success. It was very interesting to see some people who were involved, like the really hardcore horizontalists in uh, the, the group who initiated Occupy Wall Street in some of the, the anniversary pieces that came out a couple of months ago on the occasion of the 10th anniversary of Occupy. I remember reading one of one of these people saying, oh yeah, it was occupied. People people who say, I don't understand what people mean when they say that occupied failed. It was a massive success because we showed to people that it was possible to do things differently. And never mind never mind the fact that that doesn't seem to be the conclusion that most people reached. Or, well, they, no. Okay, to be fair, people did did get a taste of different ways of doing things. They also realized, okay, we didn't find a way of, we couldn't make, make these different ways of doing things sustainable over time. But there is precisely this idea, which is a very, 90s idea in the way that the most you can aspire to is to have an experience of living differently and plant the idea in people's heads that things could be different. And it's like, well, this is the largest mass mobilization that you'd had in the US in a very long time. 
to make planting the the idea that things could be different in people's heads as the utmost goal that the largest mass mobilization in the history of the U.S. in a really long time could have. That's like, how many more do you think you're going to get of these? And like, how many more times will you plant the idea in people's heads until you actually make a move to, right, this is it. Now that all of you got the idea, let's do it. I think that's a really that's a really interesting way of putting it to talk about things not like this not happening every day. Although, but I would also, I, I mean, I sort of agree with that conceptualization. But I would add a, a, a sort of complementary, sort of counter conceptualization that my experience of moments like Occupy is that, to be honest, the mistake that people make more often, too often, is to think that they're more exceptional than they are. And to think that they're so exceptional that the fact that it's happening at all means that you don't have to do anything else mm. now. You yeah. don't have to go and, and try and build those institutions. I mean, this was always my, you know, that you just, I don't know how many times I've, some some person in their early 20s has told me that the fact that there's been a big demo in town today is proof that we're now at the end of, you know, capitalism or at the end of neoliberalism mm. or, you know, and um, you know, I remember, I mean, you know, the, I've often said this about the student protest in 2011, you know, they were, they were not as big as the wave of massive wave of university occupations in 1990. It's just been completely forgotten about. They weren't really that exceptional, except insofar as, you know, they ended up contributing to the emergence of an ecology of institutions, which ended up having some bigger effect on wider um, sort of ecologies and I, I think it's true I think both of those things are true actually I think it's important to recognize those moments as opportunities but it's also important not to fetishize them because the the there's there was also a lot of millenarianism around mm-hmm. occupy you know there were people who thought that the fact that you'd occupied Wall Street meant that there, there could be it was just proof that revolution was imminent that question of success or failure around things like Occupy, I do, I think is interesting. I mean, I've been interested in this idea of a sort of ecological perspective for a long time. And I think it does. And one of the things that the, the notion of working in a political ecology problematizes, actually, is the idea that you can always have a clear understanding even of the relationship between sort of intentionality, outcomes, success, and failure, because I think you know. I mean, I I do. I think Occupy did have an effect. I think Occupy A. I do think it it sort of was enough of a counterweight to the Tea Party movement that Obama wasn't didn't implement. I mean, everybody hates Obama now for all the right reasons, but he didn't implement as savage and austerity policies as the EU did and the European countries did. And he probably would have done, I think, if they, if it wasn't for the fact that Occupy demonstrated there was a degree of popular resistance to a sort of, you know, a right-wing, completely pro, pro-bank political agenda. And then also be, it obviously did, just based on the sort of biographies of some people who were involved in it, it obviously did end up contributing, like the student protest in Britain, to the kind of left wave, the, the left organisational wave that has ended up producing things like the, the Bernie movement, the institutions that have come out of that, the, the, the commercial success of Jacobin, things like this. So, and all of those things were not really things that anybody intended or were planning for. 
But they were, I think, I mean, I think they were an outcome of the fact that Occupy was had some successes. And in, t- in the terms we're talking about, I think it had some part, it, its main success actually was that it was able to break with that sort of politics of 1999 to the extent that it at least started to, it did at least start to try to conceptualize the idea of um, the dream of a mass politics. Like I always say that, you know, the, you know, it, it, it wasn't a mass politics, but the fact that it was even aspiring to be a mass politics with the, the slogan, we are the 99%, that was a significant advance on the politics, which was really characteristic of that moment, sort of 1999 to sort of 2003, when, I mean, it, lots of people involved in those protest movements just made a positive virtue of the idea that they were never going to be a mass politics. They were never going to have mass popularity. They didn't want it. They didn't see themselves as wanting it. And that's partly that's comes. I wanted to come to the the title of the book, to, yeah, a little bit. You know, the the question neither vertical nor nor horizontal. I mean, one of the ironies, one of the paradoxes to tease out in thinking about those concepts is that on the one hand, look, the notion of horizontal organisation, horizontal organisation is supposed to mean completely non hierarchical, participatory, deliberative, democratic, and vertical is supposed to imply. I mean, exactly what vertical implies is sort of complex because. The simplest way of understanding it is, uh, well, it's top-down power. But even the most ardent supporter of Leninist democratic centralism, which would be the the extreme form of left verticalism, doesn't actually think you should just have a party leadership telling the masses what to and all the party what to do. You know, they're supposed to be accountable to a set of internal democratic processes in the party. It's just that once decisions have been taken, the collective is supposed to be absolutely bound by them. And also under kind of critical emergency circumstances, when there isn't necessarily time for prolonged mass deliberation, you're supposed to defer to the elected leadership. Now, that's what verticality means in those in that context. I sound like I'm defending it. You know, I'm his, you know, this is I'm not. I mean, historically, I'm a great critic of verticality in, in every possible form. But but of course, I but ironically, the problem is one of the things that really characterized these horizontalist movements is they didn't, they never really did seem to have like a horizontalizing aspiration in a Gramscian sense of like spreading out and widening the coalition. The classic aim of you know the revolutionary party in the Leninist sense, and then in the in Gramsci and Gramsci sort of revision of it, is that the whole point is you're supposed to be building mass support. You're supposed to be extending your coalition outwards from the the core, the organising core, the political core of the proletariat or the revolutionary party or, or whatever. And one, of, but one of the things that has tended to characterise these so-called horizontalist movements over the past 30 years, it's been a complete disinterest, a complete lack of interest, I should say, in doing that. And indeed, I mean, this was the argument I was constantly having with people in those movements, like when we first met each other, the argument would be, I would say, look, you've got to persuade people who don't already agree with us to agree with us. And that just that in itself ran counter to their sort of tastes and aspirations to some extent, partly because there was this kind of weird sort of anarchist idea that even try, just trying to persuade someone to change their mind about something, even if that person was a Tory, was like somehow was like oppressing them in a way you shouldn't do, that you should just, the idea was just you should act as some sort of magnetic force or some some something that people might want to imitate, but that you shouldn't make any active attempt to like get them to change what they were doing. Uh, but partly because it was really, a lot of the time that kind of horizontalism is associated with 
yeah, we ended up being associated with a sort of subcultural politics where really what people were interested in doing was creating ideal sets of social relations within a really a highly determined group. You know, you create your group and you make your group function very democratically, but you don't really have any interest in trying to change the way other groups work or, you know, the, the wider society works. So I would say the book does a really good job. I mean, it says neither vertical nor horizontal. I've argued that in different ways. This group Compass I'm involved with sometimes has this notion of 45 degrees politics. I think I think deconstruct deconstructing deconstructing that kind of uh, that that way of framing things understanding that you know it is a really important task of, of contemporary politics and I, um i think the book does a really important job in 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 doing that and part of the point is or the the, the main point is precisely that you're not uh, you know, the, the joke I've had to deal with the most since the book came out was people saying, so you mean diagonal? <laughs> and now I have to, it took me a while to, to find them, but now I have good answers to that, which are no wiggly. And <laughs> there's another one that came up yesterday, which is uh, lumpy. Because <laughs> that's cause the 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 description of ecologies that I provide, and that's a good way of describing the description of ecologies that I provide in, in the book. Is that ecologies are lumpy. The first use of diagonals, or the or the, or the use of diagonalism as a as a as a direction in between vertical and horizontal. The first time I'm aware of that was around 2010 with the climate justice movement, and particularly when it went to Copenhagen. In the 2000s, me and Rodrigo were involved in a, in a, a magazine called Turbulence, and we were both in Copenhagen giving out these huge, these the huge numbers of these magazines. Um, it was nicknamed Turgidence, actually, so we should be careful how far into the um, <laughs> theory we get. But like, in, in a way, that's a it's, it's like, that is the classic. That is the that is a classic example of your argument, isn't it? That was the point at which the horizontalist movement, so the climate justice movement in the UK was basically a continuation of the anti-globalization movement, took loads of those assumptions with it. Then you get to a problem like climate change and there is no theory of change apart from uh, a raising, raising awareness uh, uh, or setting exemplary moments, as, as Jem just said. You know, that's when you suddenly get presented with this problem of, of well, you know, the, the, everything we've inherited just basically is, is completely inadequate, basically. And diagonalism would be you know, some almost like a form of Eurocommunism. We need to be inside and outside or whatever. I, 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 this, I was just up at Glasgow at the COP26 and it was the same old, same old um, dance <laughs> because it's not a really, there's not a good answer to, to that problem. It, mm. We need to come outside that sort of direction. Is there a step missing in, the, in your argument, Rod, about, um, you know, in order to be able to think ecologically and do the sort of strategic, like the analytical and strategic work, you're already presupposing like there's a collective agent who've got those analytical and strategic competencies. Mm. How do we get to that stage? Is this so? Like, if we just take our own biographies as a start, is this is this um, is this uh, 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 not a how-to manual, but a uh, some sort of guidance to the remnants of past movements? How do we get to the? How do we get to the stage where there's, mm. you know, a big enough collective agent with with the wide enough spread of those competencies 
that this can then have an effect. And and uh, and do you see what I'm saying? It's it's yeah. we, we we want to create collective agents and not just like rely on aggregative sort of forms of change by small things happening through aggregation. But there seems to be a step missing. Well, I I find it hard to imagine any other way to arrive at a critical mass of people doing different things and um, coming at the same problem from different angles with different forms of uh, different forms of action or whatever without going back to you have you have a few movement big bang moments where you suddenly have a massive influx of people and obviously obviously big bangs can be bigger or smaller you know they they happen in different uh scales but that is usually though i i'm my my impression is that those things come in leaps it's usually like when you have a moment like this that you will have uh a huge influx of of people and then it will be possible to have then that will give you an ecology for a while and then if people can keep it up then there will be organizations of all different shapes and and forms like you know media initiatives like navara to you know uh campaigns uh to whatever publications um legal teams etc but the the critical mass usually depends on on a moment like that but then there's the other there's the other element which is upping everyone's uh and every individual organization's game you know the the and this is something that i say at the start of the book when i when i talk about like how the first the the idea first occurred to me the the um output at the level of the ecology depends on the input at the level of the different parts of the ecology so if you don't have and this this is what i realized that was one of the the moments you know in my trajectory around that time when i i first realized this which would have been 2005 or 2006 I started doing, I joined the, the um, Justice for Cleaners campaign in what was at the time, what was the name of the union at the time? It's now Unite. It was called the, the TNG at the time. So I was one of the people who started that, that campaign. And I was doing a form of politics that was very different from anything that I had done up until that point. Previously, I'd been a horizontalist who still like posed the problem of, you know, okay, how do we bring more people into the the movement, or how do we win people over to our side? And one of the ways with so just to qualify a little bit what uh, Jeremy was saying earlier, it, it wasn't that uh, um, no one posed this problem, but I think that the way people kind of solve the problem in their heads was always with this 
magical card of, well, we need to invent new forms of organization. And these new forms that were always to come, we were always going to invent them uh, one day, they were going to solve this problem for us. And then when I started working for the the TNG and the Justice for Cleaners campaign, I realized actually the way you, you solve this problem is you go and you talk to people. And obviously you need, you need resources to do that. You need, you know, the, the union was paying me a wage for me to, to do that. And there was an office and there was, you know, there was a, a whole infrastructure behind us that made that uh, possible. But it was this very old-fashioned form of politics that could actually deliver precisely what we were missing at that point in the networks of the the then uh, moribund anti-globalization movement, which was, you know, something to draw more people in or to expand our zone of influence or to actually make the the input of the of all the different local nodes of the of the anti-globalization movement add up to something more than just you know at the end i remember in the 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 2005 world social forum at some point i realized okay literally everyone in this room now is just a phd student who is studying the World Social Forum. There's nothing else going on. <laughs> this is just people doing their, um, their PhD researches with one another. Um, <laughs> Have I ever told you about the time I got I got studied by a couple of Italian sociologists <laughs> as a member of the British anti-capitalist movement? Have, what, what do you think they learned? They didn't, well, they didn't learn much from, they got, this was around, this was in the aftermath of the time you're talking about. And Chantal Mouffe had told them, I talked to this guy, Jeremy Gilway, he's an act, he's like an actual activist. And I had to go to this room at SOAS with like three other people who they'd identified as like activists. And they were really pissed off with me because first I said, there is no movement. There's like 300 people who all know each other. That isn't a movement. And they kept saying, we don't want your analysis. We want to know how you feel. And I, so I said to them, I feel frustrated by our complete inability to constitute an effective counter-hegemonic force under these circumstances. So they were really, really pissed off with me. But we're evoking a lot that moment, and it's very sort of powerful. But I think I wanted to ask about sort of a couple of things in relation to that. So... I mean, one thing I felt when reading the book was that it was all, you were saying very um, correctly, or the things, you, you know, in some ways we'd been trying to, we, several of us had been trying to save sort of years since that moment. But I was also thinking, well, do the best of the younger generation of activists, of activists I know now, do they even need all, all this? Because to some extent, you know, the, the best people are sort of doing this. So I would look to a sort of project like, uh, forward momentum, which was the faction. It was basically the radical left, uh, as I would call it, as opposed to the orthodox left faction, uh, can- contesting for the leadership of momentum last year that Keir was heavily involved with as a, in, in the sense of actually doing stuff. 
uh, and I was involved with in the sense of benignly like offering encourage avuncular encouragement. <laughs> and um, but that project was really sort of successful, and it really did kind of it, you know deploy radical democratic deliberative strategies of like you know holding primaries and getting people using kind of quite very sort of horizontalist in in a way or um organizational forms and it's and it was also successful um whether that group have now been able to do anything much with momentum having got control of it under present circumstances is another question but i do think but i certainly most of those people most of whom are sort of you know 10 15 years younger than us they would have an idea, a conception of the relationship between party, movement, democracy, you know, centralization, etc., which is just sort of precisely the one you're setting out in the book or kind of advocating for. They already have sort of absolutely a sort of ecological conception of politics. And and so one might say, well, they they don't really sort of need the book, which I think is probably true on some level. On the other hand, it's also clear that they're not really, I mean, unfortunately, even within the sort of post-Corbynite left, people with that level of strategic sophistication are not in the majority, and which is why the arguments of the book are still really needed. But um, one of the se- a central questions that comes up in the debates between that group of people and other people on the sort of, as we keep calling it, the post-Corbynite left, which also mirrors debates going on within uh, DSA in the States, is the question, the perennial question of the party form. Like, what is the role and the party as an institution? Like, what what are political parties? What functions, for, for the carrying out of what functions are they actually necessary? Uh, and what can we do with the existing ones that we've inherited from the histories w- which we haven't chosen? So, for example, I thought I, I really liked the way you sort of engaged with the arguments made by people like Jody Dean, who sort of in, in in as part of that sort of neo-Leninist moment of about you know five, ten, twelve years ago, makes a very sort of strong argument that basically you cannot do without the party form. And you make an argument very well, you know, I think that I've made it, I've made in the past in more casually, which is that, look, just because you've identified a set of things that, that have to be done, that have historically been done by like Leninist parties, doesn't mean that Leninist party is the only thing that can do them, which I think is really useful, incredibly useful. I think it'd be interesting, though, for us to talk about, all of us, you know, the sort of concrete situation now and the way in which those these debates around how you relate to the existing parties, whether you need new parties, etc. How do they play out? I mean, specifically in this kind of Anglo-American context, which is fairly distinctive from the European context, for example, uh, and probably different from like most Latin American countries in that apart from anything else, we have sort of electoral systems which basically just foreclose the option of just of creating a new party. I mean, in a in a country like France, there's a well-worn path to deciding you need a new project, creating a new party, splitting the old party that you've come from, but still getting enough votes to get into parliament, then negotiating with the part the party you have split from in order to arrive at a position. And that's how you do politics. Things in Britain in the States, we just you cannot do that. The entire the, we have a constitutional setup which just mitigate against that being a being a an option. The the only thing you can do with a new you can harass 
the major parties with a new party. You can do like UKIP and you can you can put sort of tactical pressure on them, but you cannot just set up a new party which which is expressive of your ideology and expect it to do the work that a party is historically supposed to do. So I wonder what your thoughts are, but also Keir's as well, you know, both of us are on, well, what is, you know, on the basis of the insights in the book, what are the useful things we can do in that situation where we are just, we are apparently just stuck with a sort of, uh, you know, a, a situation in which there is one, you know, centre-left party with which is capable of contesting electoral politics and um, and which historically until very recent, for the past 30 years, until 20, really from 1985 to 2015, anything you can reasonably refer to as the left was just completely out with, completely out, outside of. I think one of the, one of the problems that the left has had um, over the last couple of years, and, and that includes, you know, the, the new leadership of momentum as well, is that we've, we haven't been very good at fighting a rearguard action from a defeat, basically. And part of that is if we want, if we, if we use the, the, the uh, Rodrigo's um, ideas and uh, basically instructions to think, think ecologically. And so that means, you know, there are set, there, there are all different organizations and, and you, know, you have to think about how, one organization influences the other, even if that's not conscious or even aware, you're not even aware of the interaction. You can still influence the way, way, way groups um, operate, etc. And so it, 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 the way Rodrigo writes about it is that like what we should, what that should, what awareness of thinking ecology should do is to, is to sort of highlight complementarity or, or to bring complementarity, how to make the different parts of a movement complementary to each other to some degree, either consciously or basically just by playing the parts that aren't there, as Rodrigo said in a different interview recently in a Miles Davis uh, quote or paraphrase. But the problem we've we've discovered, the reason that the, the left has not been good at doing a rearguard action since the defeat of Corbyn is we sort of didn't think ecologically in terms of our enemies, either, right? Or even... Or even people who could be friend or enemy, but since Corbynism are now just absolute fanatical enemies. And so basically what part of the thing that Corbynism did, it had an incredibly radicalizing effect on this on centrism, both center right and center left in the UK. And so liberals, liberals who we actually do need to have some sort of complementary relationship to to a certain degree, have been like fanatically, you know, and anti-communist, but basically anti-democratic as well. Are like absolutely fine with you know all democratic structures and Labour party being ripped apart all sort of democratic norms around journalism being thrown out like you know absolutely no compunction at all about just utter, utterly ripping up norms and any sense of fairness to a much larger degree than before corby there's there seems to be a problem there of we can think ecologically with with people on the left and, and work out complementarity but just by by trying to to introduce the most mildest forms of social democracy, you know, straight away we got into this incredibly hard conflict, which has radicalised people who we could have been in complementarity with, and and, and that the degree to which that was happening, basically, that that which that was happening before 2019, but the way it's just carried on and accelerated since 2019, I think, is completely wrong-footed. You know, the left, or a large part of the left, who were trying to fight a rearguard action. But like, didn't realise that the basic fanaticism of the of the enemy that they produced just by existing. And I think 
I think the situation that you find yourselves in now is very like uh, one of the di difficulties of uh, trying to uh, give any suggestions from outside is that also you seem to be in that position that anecdote that Zizek likes to tell about the the advice that uh, Gandhi would have given to uh, Jews in Germany let them let the Nazis come at you because this is going to demoralize them but that obviously supposes that the Nazis weren't serious about exterminating the Jews and that, that they could be shamed by being publicly seen exterminating the Jews the equivalent in um, the equivalent in in the situation in the UK now is that it's not clear to me that you know you would you would have one sort of leverage dealing with the the people who are in control of the party now if it looked like they wanted to win but it's not even clear that they do <laughs> and this gives you a lot less leverage because they would need you to uh despite all the distortions that are created by the first past the post system they would need you in order to win but it's not even clear that they don't just want to be the loyal opposition forever and i think it's clear that I, it's clear that that is what they want yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean that's, but I think that's part of the process that Keir is talking about. That the radical—it's a very good analysis, I think, Keir. That the radicalized—we've radicalized them to the point where they're having faced the choice between actually getting a left government and just remaining the royal opposition. They—they they clearly chose the latter, and that is—that is a symptom of that radicalization in a way. I think that they're not—they're not even willing to go along with it with a left government that would have been popular and that would have been you know done all the stuff most of them had been telling themselves they wanted to do but, but couldn't for years yeah and then you you're doubly limited by the fact that on the one hand the political system makes it almost impossible to create a new party that would be able to contest elections and then on on the other hand you can't negotiate anything if you can't like the the most important currency that the the movement would have would be votes but if they're not that interested in votes then it's hard to to me the situation it does sort of exemplify something that you know, allows us to deepen a bit our understanding of well, what does an ecological approach to politics mean because to me it, it's a good way of describing you know, something I've been sort of trying to advocate for, I think, since I was a teenager, which is just which is just taking completely seriously the idea of like by, by any means necessary. You know, take seriously that Malcolm X slogan. Look, you just use whatever means are available to advance mm. the cause. You know, whether that means working in the Labour Party, whether that means, you know, fighting on the streets. And you can do both in the same week. I mean, I used to, I remember just, it used to drive me mad in, in the 90s, that assumption that you somehow, there was a, that it was a, a, there was a contradiction between, you know, 
even advocating for a Labour government, even if it was a Blair government, and like doing reclaim the streets. Because to me, it was just, well, they're, they're different domains. Like in the domain of electoral politics, the best we're going to get at this moment is a Blair government. It's better than a Tory government. You know, that doesn't stop us like squatting a street if, if that opportunity also presents itself. But of course, in order to do that, I mean, this is the sort of conclusion I came to and, and other people also came to by the end of the 90s is, well, one of the issues there is you really have to sort of not make a lot of your political work a, a site of sort of psychic investment and identification. Because the whole point, the whole problem for, for those people in the 90s was, well, if you identify as a, like a roads protesting anarchist, you can't also identify as a member of the Labour Party. And my position was always, well, you probably shouldn't identify as either of those things. You should, or you probably, should, if you're going to identify as something, it's got to be something which is very sort of, um, you know, which which is which is defined partly by a commitment to to ecological practice and thinking and strategy. I mean, it's partly. I keep. I mean, I keep saying to people in debates around whether or not people should leave the Labour Party, which I keep saying people shouldn't. I mean, I say, you know, you can identify with something, identify with momentum. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an ideological organisation, but don't identify or disidentify with the Labour Party. It's stupid as a, as a site of investment. And one of the things that's really came out when this issue, I talked about this issue at the World Transformed, you know, the big kind of um, sort of Corbynite, post-Corbynite left festival of ideas that Kira and I both participate in every year. I talked about this in September. And one of the things that really sort of became clear in people discussing this issue was that, I mean, one of the things that is quite difficult, really difficult for people to manage and handle, and it's really understandable that it's difficult, is that if you're going to approach the situation that we've been describing, so with the Labour Party today, well, you have got to be prepared to be very fucking nasty towards some of these people. You know, some of these, you've got to be prepared to be a route, to be ruthless, cold, indifferent, and antagonistic towards our enemies in the sort of bureaucratic right of the party, to the point where you are actually willing to, for example, contemplate deselecting a local MP to whom you're sort of vaguely emotionally attached just because they're not the Tory candidate. And the problem is that an awful lot of people on, on the left, especially the Corbynite left, they're not, they're not nasty people. They're used to being habitually, to being nice, creative, collaborative, collegial, caring and sensitive in most of their lives, you know. And um, and it just it's very, very difficult for them to be nasty. And they think of people who do nasty things as nasty people who they don't want to be like. And, um, and to me, this sort of, you know, it requires... To do ecological politics, I think it requires the having a sort of conception of yourself, which is somewhat complex, multiple, you know, which is capable, which recognises that at, at times you will have to do things. You might have to do things that feel nasty. Of course, this is the classic Leninist, you know, claim. This is the, and of course, one of the one of the things that people are kind of understandably repulsed by is the kind of the classical Leninist figure of the ruthless revolutionary who has so dedicated themselves to revolutionary cause and outcomes that they no longer have any emotional life. You know, it's it's Lenin versus Martov, you know, the one, you know, Lenin won't condone the comrade who is obvious who has just abused a woman, you know, who's had an abusive relationship with a with a with a female comrade and won't um you know, won't apologize for it. And um you know, this is this is one of the things that provoked the split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. And so this is an old problem. And you know, Guattari famously writes against the figure of the le militant, you know, the activist, the militant, the revolutionary, the dedicated revolutionary who's who's just a total wanker. You know, Guattari sort of writes against this per, against that person. 
So, but that presents us with a situation where one of the real challenges is like we do have to be, be be prepared sometimes, like to be nasty to our enemies while cultivating loving, caring relationships of solidarity, like uh, amongst our comrades. And it's something that people find incredibly difficult under under present circumstances. I think. I should just set some context, Rodrigo. Over the last couple of years, we've witnessed the emergence of this character called Tanky Gilbert every now and then. <laughs> yeah, Tanky Gilbert. Yeah. I mean, look, Tanky Gilbert is, uh, yeah, demanding stern revolutionary discipline, apologising for Stalinism. I mean, reflecting on this history we've been talking about, it really does bring home in a concrete way is something I do keep saying to people. And I know it, it's something that quite a few other people sort of our age or a little bit younger agree with me about. And uh, people a lot younger find that hard to get their heads around that this is, you know, this is not like the worst moment of my life politically by any means. Like I found that period we've been talking about 15, 20 years ago, much more frustrating. You had sort of unchallenged neoliberal hegemony and just, you know, there was no, nothing, there just wasn't really an organised left. And, you know, these movements we were all part of didn't really, for a lot of them, people involved did were resistant to conceptualising themselves as being part of the history of the left at all, you know. And the left just seemed to be dead. And the fact that now, the fact that we're now in a situation where not only we have a left, even if it's a left that has suffered recent, you know, setbacks, but we have one. Like for the first time in my adult life, and I'm 50, we have one. And we have one in which the best bits of, of the best, of the actual organised left, not only academics and theorists, are people who have the level of sophistication, which this book is trying to sort of codify in their thinking around organisation, is, is huge. It's a huge advance on where we were. It's a huge advance on where we were at the moment of Occupy. And to me, it is very encouraging. I think it is, it is really encouraging that, that, that we're in a place where I can actually even ask myself, like, well, you know, it's looking at people who are, who are sort of, you know, very active in, in organised politics, in the party, in community politics, I can ask myself, like, do they even need to read this book? Rather than asking myself the question I would have been asking myself 10 years ago, like what could possibly happen to create a situation in which in which people would read this book and, and begin to understand it and, and take it on, on board? So we shouldn't just be, I think, sort of despondent because I think the fact that this, I think the book has come out at a moment when, you know, it can find a readership outside kind of academic, the, you know, political theory seminars mm. and in which... You know, it's not just me and Rodrigo, like, you know, groaning to each other about the other Deleuzians all being dickheads or, you know, <laughs> no one else, no one else, no one else understanding that it's important, you know, to, to try to have a complex idea of strategy. So I don't think, I don't think we should just be despondent. I mean, part of the ecological perspective is is not having a kind of totalizing psychic relationship to experiences of victory and defeat. You know, it's not, it's not deluding yourself that just because Jeremy Corbyn has just been elected leader of the Labour Party, you're on the verge of socialist revolution. And it's not, it's all, it's conversely not telling yourself, oh, Jeremy Corbyn's not leadership of the Labour Party anymore. And you know, the right have been on a rampage for a total of like 11 months. 
that you know that means oh actually like there's no possibility of of progressive politics you know for the next 20 years like it's neither it's you know take it on it's you know it's accepting that all outcomes are complex and imperfect you know and there, there are no total victories or defeats oh thank god we've got buddhist gilbert back <laughs> 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 but it is there is a good point you know if you're operating in the politics of of contingency without you know a, a sort of a, a teleological uh, conception of history as though you know we are moving in a in a direct in a certain direction and therefore ultimate victory is assured you know ultimate victory is not assured neither is ultimate defeat do you know what i mean exactly you, and you you realize you go these you know movements and the movement overall goes through waves and you try something out, it gets exhausted, and then the movement, you know, uh, reassembles over a period, and then tries tries another thing out. We know the, the the difference now is we have to hope that this is in an accelerated mode because the time scale is short, etc. But um, ignore what Jeremy just said. You should buy this book and read this book, even if you think you know it all already. <laughs> even though, even though it is the tardiest owl of Minerva. Ever. It was too late to be the Owl of Minerva of the anti-globalization movement. It ended up being too late to be the Owl of Minerva of 2011. But you know, but it's still it provides a very useful set of concepts and language to formulate these arguments, which we're going to have to keep having with our comrades over the next few years. It's the tardier the owl, the greater the knowledge delivery. <laughs> <laughs> And that, folks, is Hegel. <laughs> On that owl bombshell, let's... Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks very much, Rodrigo. Yeah, thanks, Rod. That's perfect. Thanks. This is Ashley.